This is a letter scholars reckon was written around 60 to 62 AD. So we're talking 30 approximate years after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it was written after Paul was imprisoned in the city of Rome. And you know, Paul at this time is unaware, he's completely unaware that in maybe two or three years time, he will once again be back in prison in Rome. But this time it will lead to his death. Paul will be martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now this time around 60 to 62 AD, he's actually released, but he will be back <clears throat> imprisoned again for his faith and for sharing the gospel. So those of you who have read and study and know <clears throat> this wonderful letter from Paul to the church in Colossae will be aware, someone once called it a beautiful blend of theology and practice. A beautiful blend of theology and practice. And that's what this book is. And as, as I've mentioned in earlier studies, this letter, like, like many of the others that Paul wrote, they seem to split right down the center with one half being purely theological and doctrinal, with the other half being specifically practical, very, very practical. He gives the reader two or three chapters of scriptural truth concerning who God is and how God works, and then he gives two or three chapters as to how the readers are to better serve this God who is the almighty creator and redeemer. So we'll give you two more words, both beginning with D. Say that with me. Doctrine and discipline. Some of you aren't saying it. Say it again. Doctrine and discipline. That's it. Okay, so that's what Paul gives us in his letters. He gives us first half doctrine, second half discipline. And there are two things that we all need in our lives to live in the right service of the Lord. Do you agree? We need the doctrine, yes. It's so vital. But we also need the discipline. We learn what the truth is and then how we live the truth out. We learn about who God is, then we live our lives in the service of him. That's why we're all here, isn't that right? Doctrine and discipline. And this letter to the Colossians is no different. In fact, I feel like it's the perfect example of this split between doctrine and discipline. We've got four chapters. We've got chapters one and two dealing with doctrine and theology and teaching. Then we've got chapters three and four giving us advice and assistance on how to live out our lives in a practical way, how to actually live out those teachings in our day-to-day -day lives. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a very practical guy. He doesn't just give, in, give us the teaching and leave us there. He also gives us a kind of a map to steer us in the right direction on how we are to live, how we are to serve the Lord, how, how we are to serve our churches, our fellow believers, and those outside its four walls. And you know, this little letter to the believers in the region of Phrygia in Asia Minor is certainly the perfect example of that, what, of what Paul does. Look, as you know, we're still in chapter one of this wonderful little book. And tonight, we'll be taking a walk into a delightful forest of truth concerning our Redeemer and Savior. The one who is, say it with me, the supreme and superior Sustainer. Some of you have forgotten already. You've heads like sieves. And you all know who I'm talking about, don't you? Who is that person? It's the Lord Jesus. It's God manifest in the flesh. The Son of God and the Son of Man. The supreme sustainer and the superior one who is our Savior. Amen. 
And he is worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our thanks, all of our gratefulness. Can you say amen to that? But before we dig into the text for this evening, I want to go back and just share with you about the issues that I spoke of before in this particular church, because it's important we understand this. I told you of something called the Colossian heresy, or the Colossian problem, or the Colossian concern. There's two C's, you'll remember that, the Colossian concern. I shared with you a little about this Gnosticism and what that was, and I do hope you remember that. I'm not going to get into that tonight, but simply, the big issue for the surrounding culture and its surrounding peoples and the influence they were having on the believers in the church. This Colossian uh, concern and heresy, put in the simplest terms, was a mix of attitudes, cultural ideas, and traditions that existed at the time. You see, you had Jews, you had the Romans, and now you had the Greeks, all bringing their own cultural ideas, including their own religious traditions, beliefs, and superstitions, just as we would. This place was a big melting pot, but this pot had begun to spill over into the church. You see, the gospel was slowly being pushed out. It wasn't a quick push. It was a slow push for what we might call a kind of high philosophy or a set of philosophies, pushing faith to the back and thought and reason to the front and to the fore. You see, many in Colossae thought themselves to be thinkers, great minds above the rest of the people, above the plebs. Do you want to use that term? You know where plebs comes from, don't you? It was a Roman term, the plebeians, the peasants. That's, no, I find that fascinating. <laughs> I've been called a pleb a few times. <laughs> Thanks, Ronnie. <laughs> These people thought themselves to be thinkers. They were kind of thought themselves set apart from the peasants and the ignorant. But you know, all they were really doing was substituting the good news of Jesus Christ for a mix and a mashup of all this pagan and religious and superstitious nonsense mixed in with many of the cultures that surrounded them and it started to make its way into the church. And I want to tell you something, church. I want to make this clear. Once the truth of the gospel, once the good news of Jesus Christ begins to be slowly pushed out, pushed out of the church or to the side, the church is in big trouble. It's in big trouble. Why? Because it's why the church exists. The gospel is the central message and the central tenant of the church of Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be the focus of the church today and as long as the Lord tarries. We all know this verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, say it with me, the just shall live by faith. My mouth's so dry tonight, making me nervous. You see, if the gospel is pushed out, if the good news is pushed out, the opportunity for salvation is pushed out along with it. If we don't preach the gospel, if we don't preach the good news of Jesus, how will anyone know what's expected of them? How will anyone know to repent? How will anyone know that they're actually lost in their sin? 
You see, the gospel is the centerpiece of our faith. And at the center of that gospel message is the cross and the resurrection of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, if we don't have the gospel, what do we have? Nothing. We have nothing. We have empty words. We can have all the knowledge. We can have all the understanding in the world. But without the gospel, we will have nothing. I like to read. I like to have a bit of knowledge. I like to talk to people who have a bit of knowledge. But in this church, the gospel was being pushed out for that exact thing. And they were getting off track. Yes, we can fill ourselves full of information. We can become thinkers and philosophers and debaters. We can be filled with reason and logic. But church, without the gospel, in the church, we will have nothing. We will have lost it. We're a way off because the gospel is everything. The good news of salvation for mankind brought about by the vicarious death and bodily erection of Jesus Christ is everything. It's absolutely everything. Church, have I made it clear tonight? It's everything. Look, let it be a warning to all who are trying to water down and dilute the truth of Scripture. I'm not saying anyone here is, but let it be a warning to those who desire to preach and teach the Word. Look, I can tell you this for sure, as sure as I'm standing here tonight. If your preaching and teaching is not gospel-based and founded in the Bible, in the Word of God, you ain't getting anywhere near this pulpit. Is that, am I right? Alan, Ronnie, Felgate, am I right? If you water it down, you won't be up here. So we won't do it. Amen? As we make our way through this letter, I will draw your attention to the places where Paul is trying to right these wrongs, to correct the church and bring them back into gospel focus. A foundation built on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll keep going. As always, I want to read into our passage tonight from what comes before. And our main text for this evening will begin at verse 15 of chapter 1, if you've got a Bible there of Colossians. But I want, I want you to go back with me to verse 9 so that we can follow the flow of Paul and Timothy into this absolutely wonderful passage that we will be uh, walking through over the next two weeks. Colossians 1, reading from verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? So that ye might work, walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Listen, for by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. How incredible, church, are those last three verses. And that's where we're going to stay tonight. 
absolutely wonderful, filled with gospel truth and teaching. So much for us to dig into this evening. Okay, we'll go to the, the beginning of verse 13. And in the King James, the first word we have is who. Who. Now, let me ask you a question. This might sound a bit Irish. <laughs> who is this who? Who is the who? Because we need to know, if we're going to understand this, we've got to know who, it's, who Paul's talking about. Well, Paul told us in verse 13, and that's why it's always important to read the passage in its context so that we don't find ourselves in error and false teaching. Paul tells the believers in Colossae that the Father has delivered them from the kingdom of darkness and translated or moved them into the kingdom of who? Who is it? His dear son. His dear son. We looked at this a few weeks ago. The son of man, the son of God, the only begotten son of the Father, filled with grace and truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the who is Jesus. There can be no doubt about it. And just look, church, look at who this Jesus is. Let's read it together again tonight. And church, I really want you to take this in as we read it together. Who? That is the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. Amen. I want to read it for you in the contemporary English version just to give it a slightly different flavor. Christ, oh, sorry. Christ is exactly like God who cannot be seen. He is the firstborn son, superior to all creation. Everything was created by him. Everything in heaven and on earth, everything seen and unseen, including all forces and powers and all rulers and authorities. All things were created by God's son and everything was made for him. God's son was before all else and by him everything is held together. Amen. Church, I love this so much. Jesus Christ the Son of God is the image of the invisible God. He is exactly and precisely like God. You see, Jesus Christ made the invisible visible. We all know what John wrote concerning the Almighty God and his gospel. John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, church, we know that God cannot be seen. But now we can, because Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of everything that God is. He is God, and he shows us who God is and what God is like. Look, can we focus our attention on, the, on this first phrase from verse 13 for just a moment? Let's start with this word image. You know, I like to do a few of these just to get us through um, the, the text. It's the Greek word icon icon. And this word finds its root in the word for likeness, as you would expect, likeness. It means to literally be a statue or figure, figure, figuratively, 
a resemblance or a representation. And you know, this word image, it gives us a perfect mix of both in the New Testament. It kind of fuses both of those meanings together. Fair in his Greek lexicon gives us this wonderful meaning of this word. He says, it is the image of one to another. And on account of Jesus Christ, it is in reference to his divine nature and absolute moral excellence. Did you hear that? His divine nature and absolute moral excellence. This word translated as image gives us basically two ideas. The first one is likeness. And the second one is manifestation. So imagine a Roman coin back in the day, back a few days, of course. You would have the likeness of the emperor on it, a likeness of the emperor's image. And what about this word manifestation? A word we all know, God fully revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. The God-man, the son of God and the son of man, God manifest in the flesh. And as John so beautifully put it in chapter one of his gospel, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's incredible, church. The incarnation, God coming to earth, God coming to man, tabernacled in the very flesh he created. It doesn't get any better than that. I know it's not Christmas time, but we can talk about the incarnation all year round, can't we? Understand here, church, that Paul, Paul here had options, okay? He could have simply used another word. I'm going to try and say this. Homoeoma, homoeoma, which simply means a similar appearance or a vague likeness. But you know, Paul here chooses to use a word that can only mean one thing, that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. It's not just a likeness. It's not a vague resemblance. Jesus is God. A.T. Robertson put, puts it like this. Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father. I absolutely love that. But not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, Paul also tells us that he is the firstborn of every creature. Or as the contemporary English has it, he is the firstborn son, there's that word, superior to all creation. Did you hear that, church? Superior to all creation. You see, this isn't primarily about time. It's about rank. Like in an army, like with soldiers, this is about rank. It is Paul giving the saints in Colossae the simple yet profound truth that Jesus Christ, God, manifest, tabernacled in human flesh, is superior to all creation. He's above it. He's superior to everything. He is supreme and he is superior in every way that you can imagine. Firstborn, prototokos, priority in time. That's its first meaning. Secondly, superiority in rank. Did Paul mean both? It's possible. But you know, Every translation that I read, within the context, always go with the second meaning, that which speaks of rank. And what do they mean? What, what's Paul saying? Well, he's saying that Jesus Christ is the firstborn, not that he was the firstborn in time, but that he is superior over all creation. He is the supreme savior 
over all. Church, you hearing this tonight? There is no one higher. There is no one greater. There is no one above him. There's no one above him in rank. He is at the top. And if you think you're at the top, you're sorely mistaken. Same for Putin. <laughs> Jesus Christ is at the very top. There's no one above him in rank. He alone is the what? Supreme and superior sustainer. He alone is almighty God. He is the image, the one who carries the very nature of the Father and shows us exactly who God is and what God is like. It's not a similar or vague representation. It is a perfect manifestation and a precise likeness. God, get your mind around it. Manifested in skin and bone. It is God, I always love this translation. It is God pitching his tent among his people in humility and in meekness. A flesh like veil, but church within it, containing all the power and the glory of God Almighty. It's incredible. The incarnation, what a wonder and a miracle. And you know, this is one of those times in the letter to the Colossians where we must have a bit of an understanding about the context and culture that Paul is writing into. You know, some believers, as I said, were being led away. They were being taken away by strange doctrines and philosophies that we spoke about earlier. And you know, Jesus, he was being removed as the supreme and all-sufficient Lord and Savior. He wasn't being pushed out completely, but many had begun to worship angels and other higher powers alongside Jesus, and that cannot be. That has to be addressed because it's only Jesus alone who is the supreme Lord and sovereign sustainer over all things. You know, I was thinking about this in the car earlier. That little, I was re, when Alan quoted um, first, I think it was first John this morning, or something, something put it in my head. First John finishes with these words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. When we put something in the place of Jesus and in place of our Lord, what are we doing? That's idolatry. That's idolatry. And what, 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 what are the Ten Commandments? It's there, it's clear, it's black and white. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If we put anything, whether it's thinking or thought or reason or logic or whatever it is, when we put it in the place of where Jesus is meant to be, that is idolatry. And it cannot be. And this is why Paul writes exactly what he does. He's trying to correct this false teaching and to stop others from being led away into this error and into this heresy. He's saying, Colossians, stop. You need to stop right now. Stop where you are. Let me tell you, Jesus is the only supreme one. In all of creation, he is number one. You can't have an angel beside him. You can't have any other God beside him. There's no one else. There's none above him. There's no one beside him. He does not share the number one spot with anyone. He is the sole, supreme, sovereign, and superior sustainer. Is that enough S's for you? <laughs> the sole supreme sovereign and superior sustainer. Stop all this other stuff. Stop trying to depose Jesus. Stop trying to dethrone him in your hearts and remove him from the rightful throne in your lives, in your hearts, and in your minds. Only he is worthy of your praise, glory, and worship as God. Colossians, stop what you're doing and consider my words. Seriously consider what I'm saying. 
You know, Paul felt that they were getting off track and Paul wanted to get them back on very quickly. I didn't know this church, but obviously in my studies, I find out, well, I always find out things I don't know because I know very little. During the second temple period in which Jesus walked the earth, many rabbis referred to God, to Yahweh, as the firstborn of the world. It got got me thinking, I wonder if in, in Paul's former life, as that zealous Jew, had he referred to God with the revelation that he had then? Did he refer to Yahweh as the firstborn? Is this something that he already knew about? This firstborn over creation? And now after meeting Jesus on the Damascus road, suddenly he has this fresh revelation of who Yahweh is. He, he, he sees now Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. I don't think I'm stretching too far with this. Paul would have known these words. And Paul knew in his heart that this Jesus was the one that was none other than the eternal God, the eternal spirit, the Father veiled in flesh. And now he gives it plain and simple to the believers in Phrygia, surrounded on all sides by this angel worship, by the traditions of Judaism and the Greeks, this Hellenistic culture and the Gnostic culture too. And he says, Colossians, listen, it has to be Jesus alone. He alone is the supreme God. Church, we haven't even got out of verse 15. (laughs) I'm sorry. But I just love the truth of what Paul is giving to the Colossians here. Let's move on quickly. Paul and Timothy give us more wonderful truths about who this son is, this one who is the perfect representation of Almighty God. What does Paul say? Well, two things stand out. That all things were created, set by him, and that all things were created for him. What are these things that were created by him? Paul gives us a list. All that is in heaven, all that is on earth, all things that are visible, all things that are invisible, whether they are thrones, whether they are powers, whether they are principalities or dominions. Paul is clear, all things. Church, what does all mean? All, all means all. All things were made by him and all things were created for him. This supreme, sovereign and superior one is not only the creator of all things, but all things were in fact created for him, by him and for him. Everything that exists in the universe was created by him and for him. Why? To rule and reign over as the supreme and sovereign Lord. The scholar I quoted earlier, A.T. Robertson, had a phrase. This is his. uh, Robertson says this. He, that's Jesus, is the author of all that stands created and remains created. This creation is a Christ-centric a Christ-centered universe. And I agree with him. Jesus is at the center of absolutely everything. I love that. And you know what? It doesn't matter what you ask me about. Pete, now, what about all the nations and kingdoms? Sorry. They were created for him and he rules and reigns over them all. But what about all the dominions and powers? He can't rule over everything. Sorry. He does. They were created for him 
and he alone rules and reigns over them all. I know, Pete, okay. What about all the invisible things, though, that we can't see? Sorry. The Bible says they were all created by him and for him too. I have to tell you that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he is the sole, supreme, and sovereign ruler over them all. He was their creator, and for him they were created. You know, there's no getting around this, over it, underneath it. And I think Paul's message to the Colossian believers could not have been clearer. And if there was any doubt in the minds of some of the saints, Paul has one more thing to add. He says this in verse 17. And he, that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is before all things, and by him all things what? What's the word? Consist. Consist. The contemporary English version has it like this. God's Son was before all else, and by him everything is held together. Church, I know when you're reading this passage that there's another one already going through your minds. John 1. This is from a translation called God's Word. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already with God in the beginning. Everything came into existence through him. Not one thing that exists was made without him. He was the source of life, and that life was the light for humanity. And what about the incredible words of John the Apostle in his later epistle? 1 John 1, 1 1-2, we all know this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Incredible words from John. The word here translated as before is the Greek word pro. And you know what? It carries a sense of eternality. Eternality. I hope that's a word. Eternality. It's a primary preposition for. It means in front of or prior. And guess what? It has a, fi- a figurative meaning which fits right in with our title tonight. Guess what else it can mean? It means superior. Superior. Not only before but also superior. Look, Paul here is speaking in plain and simple language concerning the eternality of God. God has always been, and he always will be. He is forever and ever and ever. Amen. He was ago. He was before. He was prior to anything and everything, and now he holds everything together in the person of Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God, this image and this perfect likeness of the Almighty God, God manifest in the flesh, tabernacled among us, a perfect representation and resemblance of the eternal spirit that is Yahweh. Look, I have always loved these words of Paul that he wrote in correction to the believers in Colossae, Asia Minor. In him, all things consist. In him, all things hold together. In him, all things find their unity. Here we have the unifying principle of the supreme sustainer that we have talked about so much tonight. God in Christ Jesus is the ultimate preserver. He's the ultimate preserver. 
And you know what? It's the continuing power of Almighty God in Christ that continues to hold up everything and hold it together for his glory and for his praise. Our final word study this evening, I'm coming to your close, is this word consist, okay? It's the Greek word sunistao, sunistao. Church, it has so many wonderful meanings and implications that are directly applicable to our study this evening. Listen to this. This word means to set together. And you know what? That's precisely what God has done with his creation and universe. It also means to exhibit. Church, is there any human alive today in the past or who will live in the future who hasn't had the pleasure of seeing God's handiwork firsthand? Every, all of us get to see it. It means to introduce and to constitute, to approve, to commend, and to stand. In Jesus Christ, all things, that is everything, all things are approved, all things are commended, all things stand together, all things hold together, and all things consist in him and by him. One more meaning is to put together by way of composition and combination. I love that composition and combination. You know, coming from a musical perspective like myself, in terms of composition, I started thinking about writing a song, words, putting words and notes together, syllables, sentences, phrases, along with the melody. You have to fit the words to the melody. You have to fit the melody to the words. You have to fit the words to the phrase. Everything has to fit. Everything has to rhyme. That's how composition works. Then you start with the chords, with the melody. You write the melody and then someone sings the harmony and someone sings another harmony and suddenly your composition all comes together. You know what? That's exactly what God did with his creation. And he continues to do it right now in this moment today. Church, our God and our Savior is without doubt the great and almighty supreme sovereign and sustainer. Can you say amen to that? He really is. That's what I want to get across tonight. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He created it. Yes, he created it, but he also sustains it. He rules over it, yes. He is sovereign, and he is the superior sustainer. Church, I could go on all night, but I won't. You still want to get your kebabs, or your, whatever you're getting your chips after I want to leave you something for next week because we've more to look at. Can I leave you tonight with a passage from the revelation of Jesus Christ that you all know so well that will lead us into a time of worship here where we can lift our voices and sing, lift our voices in praise to the almighty Savior and sustainer of all things. Church, will you stand as we read this together? It's from Revelation 4, verses 9 to 11. And when those beasts... Give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord. Read it with me. To receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure, they are and were created. Amen. Continue to stand as we sing together. We're going to sing that beautiful hymn.